should feel. He's a cool exec with the heart of steel. And Iron Man duck tooth banner, belted by Gamma Rays, turned into the Hulk. Ain't he unglamorous? Reckon the sound. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. There was an animation studio in America called Grant Ray Lawrence Animation from 1954 to 1967. And they made a series called The Marvel Superheroes, which they obviously worked with Marvel for that show. It was what you would call limited animation. By that, I mean it was basically the very first motion comic, I would say, in that they took... Or recreated the images straight out of the comic books, like Jack Kirby's Captain America, and added voice acting to it, very good voice acting, and then moved some things around a little bit on the screen to create the illusion of movement. They had Captain America, the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Mighty Thor, and the Submariner, if you can imagine. Other TV shows that Grant Ray Lawrence produced was Rocket Robin Hood. Max the 2,000-year-old mouse. And... Hello, my name is Torin. You may know me from the D&D podcast, Adventure.exe. I will be your guide to the music of the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon series. Spider-Man debuted one year after Marvel Superheroes. And it was slightly more animated. It wasn't just recreations of comic book stories, although there were definitely elements of that. There were three seasons of Spider-Man, and we are going to go through each one in turn. And the thing that you probably know the most about the 1967 Spider-Man TV show is the theme song. Composed by Robert Harris, also known as Bob Harris... And lyrics by Paul Francis Webster. Yes, the guy who wrote the, the lyrics to the Spider-Man theme songs. Last name was Webster. Now, the theme song's out of the way. Put it out of your head. We're going to talk about a guy named Ray Ellis. Ray Ellis was an American record producer, arranger, and conductor. He worked with Johnny Mathis. He worked with Sarah Vaughn. He worked with the Four Lads. But he did a lot of work for film and commercials and television. And he did much, most, all, perhaps, of the incidental music for the first season of Spider-Man, along with the aforementioned Bob Harris. You would hear this music while Spidey was endlessly swinging across town, being chased by a teddy bear robot with the face of J. Jonah Jameson, or while the rhino was inside of his cave making a gold statue of himself. Ellis did a lot of work with Filmation as well, working on The Archie Show, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Flash Gordon, and Star Trek, the animated series. Now, the first season of Spider-Man featured... Most of its rogue gallery. (laughs) 
Scorpion, Green Goblin, Dr. Octopus, the Rhino, and so forth. Mysterio. But they also featured a lot of characters that were made up just for the TV series, like uh, fucking Dr. Noah Body and Harley Clivenden, an Australian hunter type. Yeah, they made up a hunter-type villain for Spider-Man, despite the fact that Kraven the Hunter had debuted in the comics like 1964, so a few years earlier. And this Clivenden guy also had a rather unfortunate um, minority representation sidekick, which I won't go into here. Sadly, so sadly, you cannot download this music from your iTunes or your Google Play or Spotify or whatever. Because, as far as we know, professional recordings of this music no longer exist. Bob Harris claimed to have the masters in his New York City home. And we know this because the bassist from a jazz group out of Alberta, Canada, calling themselves Mole City... This guy corresponded with Bob Harris, who was living in California. He said he had the master tapes in his home in New York, which he rarely visited. This was around 2000, which was the year that his health deteriorated. And both he and the fellow from Mole City actually passed away in that year. Uh, Bob Harris's wife also claimed not to have any knowledge about the whereabouts of the masters. And in addition to that, their home was broken into and a bunch of stuff was stolen. So that's where we sit to this day. And this information, by the way, came to me from uh, the WFMU, Beware of the Blog, from the hard work of Cliff Nesteroff. So the only way you can listen to Ray Ellis's and Bob Harris's music, incidental music from the first season of the Spider-Man cartoon, is by watching it. Or, yes, indeed, you can go to YouTube, where a bunch of Spider-Man nerds have stitched together the songs from the source material in the cartoons. That's pretty good. Or listening to this podcast. Now, there is a lot of Canadian crossover in the Spider-Man TV show from the 60s, not least of which was that the voices and the music was recorded at RCA Studios in Toronto, featuring 12 CBC vocalists, members of the Billy Van Singers, if... Anyone is a fan of the television show Hilarious House of Frightenstein, you may know Billy Van as many of the characters from that show. But now, my friends, let us discuss seasons two and three. This was actually after Grand Trey Lawrence Studio had gone bankrupt and the production was taken over by Krantz Studios, working with the famous Ralph Bakshi of Fritz the Cat, Lord of the Rings, and Wizards fame, Ray Ellis and Bob Harris did not record any new music for the second season, although their first season work was reused throughout the series. Rather, the music was largely taken from what you would call stock music from the KPM library in Britain. Like, for example, this track you're listening to right now, Sixth Sense by David Lindup. Second season was when the stories got more weird. They got a little more far out. They stopped being about the rogues gallery and more about going backwards in time, going into outer space, weird underworld. The Mole Man. The fucking Mole Man. 
Blotto, that weird black ooze creature that just dissolves everything in town. I thought it might be fun to focus on a specific episode and review the music from that episode. This episode being... Season 2, Episode 9. The Evil Sorcerer. The music you're listening to right now is called Prowl Car by Ted Heath. It's the music that plays as Peter Parker and his classmates are in a museum while the slightly deranged professor explains to the kids the legend of Kotep, the Scarlet Sorcerer from Egyptian times, who the professor says can be resurrected. Rather foreboding. And legend says a magical formula was buried with him. A formula that can raise his ghost from the abyss of time. A secret by which a magician of today could invoke the powers of Kotep and employ them today. So naturally, Kotep is resurrected, and then Spider-Man has to fight him. Spider-Man loses the first battle, which gives Kotep the opportunity to summon some demon allies. And in the cartoon, it sounded a little bit like this. Arise, old demons from the past. Arise, old brothers of magic. Arise, for I, Kotep, summon you from the depths of time to become my legions of war. Arise and follow me, for I alone hold the scepter of power, and no one stands in my way. The underlying music is The Hellraisers by Sid Dale. Kotep's would-be demon army says, sure, we'll help you, but you have to prove yourself first. You have to defeat Spider-Man on your own. So Kotep makes a giant web in the middle of Times Square or downtown New York, and Spider-Man goes to check it out. Wow, whatever it is, it's tremendous. Wonder what Kotep hopes to gain by it. If it is Kotep who's behind that king-sized flytrap, guess I'd better take a closer look. This track is called Rat Race, and it's by Ted Heath. Spider-Man finds himself transported to some fantastical terrain where he comes across some giant bat creatures, and he hitches a ride on them to Kotep's castle. Thank you. 
as Panic Patrol by Kenny Graham plays in the background. Spider-Man enters Kotep's castle, explores it for a bit, and then comes face to face with the Scarlet Sorcerer, where they fight! They fight! To the tune of Slipstream by Sid Dale. Season 2 stories were a complete 22-minute episode, whereas in Season 1, each half hour would be split into two stories, for the most part. Season 3, on the other hand, kind of split the difference of Season 1 and Season 2, whereas some episodes were the full half hour, some episodes were split into two shorter stories, and a lot of them were reused from the first season. For example, episode 48A, Rhino, was simply cobbled together from footage from two first season episodes, Horn of the Rhino and the Golden Rhino. So that's clearly a cost-cutting technique that they used. Another one, if you recall, I mentioned that the studio produced Rocket Robin Hood. Well, in the second season of Spider-Man, there's an episode called Phantom from the Depths of Time, and this episode reuses Rock and Robin Hood backgrounds and villains from the Rocket Robin Hood episode from Menace to Menace. More famously... Or infamously, this technique was used in Season 3 again for a Spider-Man episode called Revolt in the Fifth Dimension, which was cribbed almost entirely from a Rocket Robin Hood episode, Dementia 5. This track, Suspense Musical Saw by Johnny Hawksworth, was only used in this episode. And ABC in America never actually aired this episode with the rest of the third season because it was just too intense, I guess. This episode is really something, and I recommend you track it down if you can. It has a memorable villain named Infinata. I will leave you with his words, and then I'm going to close out this section with another track from Revolt in the Fifth Dimension called Drive On by Alan Hawkshaw. Climb the stairway of mystery, then cross the threshold of reality and enter into the realm of Dementia 5. I would like to acknowledge the work that came before me, all of the nerds over at librarymusicthemes.net who have meticulously cataloged all of the music from the second and third season of Spider-Man. O'Shannonland.com has taken the Ray Ellis music from the first season, grabbed it from the DVDs, and compiled them into, into tracks that you can listen to on this webpage. You can actually purchase a lot of the music from the second and third season. The KPM library is available in your local music buying service. I will post as many links as I can on my Facebook page and on my YouTube page for this episode.
When we last left our heroes... You stand before a decrepit old wizard. Adventurers, your next quest is to convince the listener to subscribe to the Dungeons & Dragons live play podcast, Adventure.exe. Roll initiative. All right, so uh, so I think what Rufus, the uh, human bard, is going to do is he's going to uh, offer a bribe. Yeah, a bribe. Uh, everyone, empty out your pockets. Oh, come on. Uh, all I've got is uh, some buttons and some lint. But I if put you're going to bribe, palm. you should use your own money. Well, I, I put up my buttons. I don't know what more you want. How much could a bribe cost? 100 gold? 200? Polly, do you have any money on you? Yeah, I don't have any money, but I, I can cast friends. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, give you a bardic inspiration to your friends. I'll uh, could, I'll could do some farting it? noises to give you <laughs> inspiration. Could you cast friends on like everybody who's listening like, yeah. all at once? Yeah, DM. I'm going to cast friendship on everybody who's listening so they subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, and source all those bastards. You've worn down the listeners with your ridiculous shenanigans. And our magic. And and, and magic, and also bribery. <laughs> the universal language. They go to their podcast service of choice and subscribe to Adventure.exe. You all level up. Yeah! Excelsior! I'm going to steal my money back. Here's an article by Sarah Laskow, November 9th, 2016, uh, which I found on atlasobscura.com. In the Middle Ages, creating a book could take years. A scribe would bend over his copy table, illuminated illuminated only by natural light. Candles were too big a risk to the books. And spend hours each day forming letters by hand, careful never to make an error. To be a copyist, what one scribe was painful. It extinguishes the light from the eyes. It bends the back. It crushes the viscera and the ribs. It brings forth pain to the kidneys. Oh, the kidneys! And weariness to the whole body. Given the extreme effort that went into creating books, scribes and book owners had a real incentive to protect their work. They used the only power they had, words. At the beginning or the end of books, scribes and book owners would write dramatic curses, threatening thieves with pain and suffering if they were to steal or damage these treasures. They did not hesitate to use the worst punishments they knew, excommunication from the church and a horrible, painful death. Steal a book and you might might be cleft Buy a demon sword, forced to sacrifice your hands, have your eyes gouged out, or end in the fires of hell and brimstone. These curses were the only things that protected the books, says Mark Drogan, author of Anathema, Medieval Scribes in the History of Book Curses. Luckily, it was in a time where people believed in them. If you ripped out a page, you were going to die in agony. You didn't want to take the chance. Drogon's book, published in 1983, is the most thorough compendium of book curses ever compiled. A cartoonist and business card designer, Drogon had taken an adult education class in Gothic letters and became entranced, entranced with medieval calligraphy. While researching his first book, he came across a short book curse as he found more and more. Hidden in footnotes of history books written in the 19th century, his collection grew to include curses from ancient Greece and the Library of Babylon up to the Renaissance. To those historians, the curses were a curiosity, but to Drogon, they were evidence of just how valuable books were to medieval scribes and scholars at a time when even the most elite institutions might have libraries of only a few dozen books. The curse of excommunication, anathema, could be simple. Drogon found many examples of short curses that made quick work of this ultimate threat. For example, may the sword of anathema slay if anyone steals this book away. 
Si quius furetur, furetur, anathematus ense necator. If a scribe really wanted to get serious, he might threaten anathema maranatha. Maranatha indicating our Lord has come and serving as an intensifier to the basic threat of excommunication. But the curses could also be much, much more elaborate. The best threat is one that really lets you know in specific detail what physical anguish is all about. The more creative the scribe, the more delicate the detail, Drogon wrote. A scribe might imagine a terrible death for a thief. If anyone take away this book, let him die the death. Let him be fried in a pan. Let the falling sickness and fever size him, size him, size him. Let him be broken on the wheel and hanged. Amen. Or even more detailed. For him that stealeth or borroweth and returneth not, this book from its owner, let it change into a serpent in his hand and rend him. Let him be struck with palsy and all his members blasted. Let him languish in pain, crying aloud for mercy. And let there be no surcease to his agony till he sing in dissolution. Uh, oh, dissolution, not dissolution. Dissolution, yes, to, to make a solution... Mordisi, let bookworms gnaw his entrails in token of the worm that dieth not, and when at last he goeth to his final punishment, let the flames of hell consume him forever. Drogon's book had dozens of such curses in it. As Drogon collected curses, he started to find repeats. Not all scribes were creative enough to write their own curses. If you're looking for a good, solid book curse, one that will serve in all sorts of situations, Try this popular one out. It covers a lot of bases, and while it's not quite as threatening as bookworms gnawing at entrails, it'll get the job done. May whoever steals or alienates this book, or mutilates it, be cut off from the body of the church, and held as a thing accursed. Thank you for listening to episode two of Torrent's Guide to Everything. Hey, don't forget to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Atkinson. Special thanks to Taylor Ramon from Pleasant Mountain Media for the spiffy new Torn's Guide to Everything logo design. Check out Taylor for all your design needs. And if you have any requests for anything you'd like me to uh, be your guide to, go ahead and find me on the Facebook or email me at tornatkinson at gmail.com. And until next time...